Good morning, church family, and happy Sabbath to you. This morning, we saw an object lesson of sorts in the special music when our friend, his name is Dudley House, he played the saw, and he made it beautiful, didn't he? A saw is, is, is sharp and cold and hard, but uh, Dudley took the saw, and with the saw, he made beautiful music. God can take us and make beautiful music, even if we're cold and sharp. Amen. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for allowing me to be here today, and in particular, Pastor Steve, who I think was responsible for putting me on the roster to preach. And so if this sermon is uninspired and it offends you, it's Steve's fault. It is, it is a privilege to be with you. My name is Matt Para, and I have the privilege of serving God as the North New South Wales Conference Sabbath School Personal Ministries and Evangelism Director. And uh, I was going to give you a, a quick, short report of some things that God has done through our departments in ministry this year, but I'm gonna spare the time and just let you all know I've got, I've got an end of the year report that will be sent out to all the pastors in the conference. And so I'm asking the pastors if they would please send uh, that report to all the church members who they have email addresses for, and then we can save some time right now. Amen? Amen. Well, the sermon uh, this morning is entitled, Do You Know What You're Asking? Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, to worship you. You've shared with us the truth of Christ, and we have the word, the scripture. We're very, very privileged. And God in heaven, we ask you that you would please join us and be with me as I share scripture. Give us ears to hear. Open our hearts and our minds. Help us to, to, to respond correctly to your word. Bless me now, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Elijah Lovejoy was a Presbyterian minister from Illinois. One day he witnessed the lynching of a freed former slave. From that moment, Elijah Lovejoy committed his life to unconditionally fighting against the evil of slavery. Now, in that time, in that place, making that kind of commitment was dangerous. On several occasions, mobs chased the man down the streets. His life was threatened regularly. But still, he persisted to preach to teach, to raise awareness of the fact that God was unhappy with the nation for the sin of slavery. He gave up a lot. He made monumental sacrifices. It even got to the point where he left the full-time preaching ministry in his church 
so that he could spend all of his time in the printing business to print abolitionist material. Well, eventually, the crowds caught up with Elijah, and they killed him. They murdered him. When the men were brought to trial who were responsible for the death, the murder of Elijah, not one of them, not one of them was convicted. And one of them even was elected the mayor of the town a few years later. Elijah was a principled man. He was a spiritual man in the truest sense. He was not seeking earthly praise or the applause of men. He sought the honor that comes from God and from God alone. It would seem that his efforts, his struggles, his righteous fight of faith, it came to nothing. But it didn't. It didn't come to nothing. There was a man who witnessed the lynching of Pastor Elijah Lovejoy. And this man, he was a lawyer. And this lawyer had recently been elected to the legislature of the state of Illinois. His name was Abraham Lincoln. The willingness of one man to follow Christ, not for reward, not for praise, not for position, but rather because he loved Christ, he loved the truth, and he would stand for it, and he would follow the Lamb wherever he went, irrespective of the consequences, affected the heart and mind of an Illinois lawyer so profoundly that that man, when he went on to become the president of the United States, freed two million people. Can you say amen? This is what the sermon today is all about. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is where we begin our Bible study for the morning, which is entitled, Do You Know What You're Asking? Do you know what you're asking? Mark chapter 10, and we begin reading in verse 35. Oh, I can see you. What a handsome crowd. <laughs> Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. The Bible says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They want something from Jesus, but before they communicate with Jesus what it is they want from him, they come to him and say, Hey, Jesus, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. They're kind of trying to get a commitment before they reveal to Jesus exactly what it is that they want from him. 
And so Jesus responds and says to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Now, this is interesting. Hey, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't say anything right away. He says, okay, what is it? I'm not going to commit myself to giving you whatever you ask just because you want me to give you whatever you ask for. What is it? What do you want? Well, Jesus, what we want from you is we want that when you, the Messiah, when you, the Christ, come into your glory, we, James and John, can be with you in your glory. Jesus doesn't respond to James and John with a yes or with a no. He simply says, you, James and John, you don't know what you're asking. Now, I wonder specifically what it was they were asking for. They thought, I'm sure, they knew what they were asking for. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I highly doubt they went to Jesus and said to Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask if they themselves didn't think they knew what they were asking. They would have been convinced, we know what we're asking. They didn't know what they were asking, and Jesus says that. So I invite you to turn with me just real quickly backwards in your Bibles, two chapters, to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to read together verse 38. Notice what it says. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. Jesus here is speaking in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, and he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with all the holy angels. Jesus here is discussing with his disciples a time when he will return back to planet Earth. And he says, when I come back to Earth, it's going to be magnificent. It's going to be powerful. It's going to be glorious. Because the Father God is going to be with me. And more than that, every single angel in heaven is going to be there too. It's going to be powerful. Jesus, we would like to sit with you, one on the right hand and one on the left, when you come into your glory. James and John wanted to sit with Jesus when he came in the glory of his power. All the holy angels, God the Father. This is what the disciples were asking for. And Jesus said, you have an incomplete understanding. You think you know all that you're asking and all that it involves, but you don't. There's something more that you're missing. There's something you don't understand. He begins to explain that. 
in the chapter, in Mark chapter 10. But now I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. So as fast as you can, go through the book of Luke, and we're going to head up to the book of John, John chapter 17. Before we read John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, I just want to share with you just a few thoughts. When one angel shows up at the tomb of Christ, an entire legion of, of, of strong military men fall down as if they were dead. Fall down as if they were dead at the presence of an angel because of the glory of his power. Every single time in Scripture, when God is seen to some degree, the person who sees God falls down on their face in fear and in trembling because of the glory of his power. When God spoke to the Israelites from the top of Mount Horeb, they were frightened to death. Now, I don't know how afraid you have to be to think that you're going to die for fear, but that's how afraid the Israelites were. They came to Moses after they heard God's voice, and they said to Moses, hey, Moses, please, please, you can speak to God, and you can bring to God the words that he shares with you, but don't let him talk to us, because if he keeps talking to us, we think we're going to die. The glory of his power. We want to sit with you, Jesus, when you come into the glory of your power, when you take over the world, when you conquer, when you set up your throne, when you dominate, that's when we want to be with you, one on the right and one on the left. You guys don't know what you're asking. What were they asking? They wanted to be with him when he came into his, his glorious, powerful position as king. Now here in John chapter 17, we're on the verge we're on the verge of Jesus being arrested, condemned, and then crucified. In John chapter 18, Jesus is arrested, and, and then he is, he's tried, and then in John chapter, sorry, yeah, in John chapter 19, he's condemned and he's crucified. So Jesus is about to offer his life for the sins of the world, for the, for, for the, for the condition of the human race. And this, John chapter 17, is a prayer. It's an intercessory prayer for his disciples and for those who would believe on him throughout the course of Christian history. And we pick up here in verse 1. John chapter 17 and verse 1. And this is what the Bible says. Jesus spoke these things. And lifting his eyes up to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour in which he would offer his life as a ransom payment for the lost race of humanity. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the hour has come where people who are possessed with the spirit of malice and evil are going to spit on him. Where people are going to take his clothes off of him, strip him naked, violently torture him, punch him in the face, make up false stories about him. That hour has come and where, he, where he faces and endures the wrath of God. That hour has come. And Jesus, praying to the Father, is saying to the Father, Father, glorify me, glorify me with the glory that we shared before the world was. Jesus, in describing what's about to happen as he prays to his Father, is in essence communicating by inference that what's going to happen is glorious, is a manifestation of God's glory. Well, what happens? Well, Jesus is crucified. Jesus is killed. Jesus is tortured. Jesus is misrepresented. He's stripped naked. He's punched in the face. People spit on him. People jeer at him. They mock him. They yell at him. They want him dead. They, 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 they foment against him vitriol and hatred. And it's for no reason. He's done nothing wrong. He's an innocent man. He loved them. He blessed them. He healed them. He preached the kingdom of God's grace to them. He showed them in his own life the kingdom of heaven. He was the embodiment of all that was good and just and righteous and true. And they're going to spit on him. They're going to strip him naked. They're going to punch him in the face. They're going to make fun of him. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head. And he's going to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He's going to say to women who are crying when they see what's happened, there's going to be women. They're going to see him bloody and bruised and battered, but yet with the holy dignity of a king, with the innocent righteousness of a lamb without spot and without blemish. They're going to see it. And when they see it, these women with their sensitive, uh, lovely hearts are going to cry. They're going to cry. And then he's going to look at them and he's going to say, don't cry for me. Don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. Because there's a day coming that's going to be worse than this. If they do this to me, what do you think they're going to do to you? He's unselfishly concerned about other people. When he's in the midst of his agony, when all of the evil and sin and depravity of the human race is being heaped upon him and piled up on top of him, and he's bearing down under the terrible, awesome weight of guilt and sin and shame. He's on the precipice of that experience. He's on the verge of that experience, and he's praying to his father, and he says, Oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory that we shared before the world was. Or in other words, show them all what we've always really been like. Jesus communicates very clearly by inference here that what happens on the cross is, in his estimation, glory and glorious. Now this, I don't suppose, is what James and John were wanting to be with him in. You know his glory?
Jesus said, Mark chapter 10, in response to these guys, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I have to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? And they said to him, we are able. We are able. Now follow this. At this point in Jesus' life, here in Mark chapter 10, he's already been baptized in the watery grave of baptism by John the Baptist. Well, what's he talking about? What's he referring to? Obviously, he's referring to his crucifixion, his baptism into death and out of death for the sins of the human race. Can you drink the cup that I have to drink? What cup is he referring to, pray tell? He's got to be referring to the cup of sin and woe that he drinks in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he says, Father, Father, if this cup might pass from me, please let it pass. Please let it pass if there's any other way. If this can be accomplished in any other way, please let it, let it be done some other way. But not my will, but your will be done. Obviously, Jesus is, is giving allusions to the glory that's going to be manifest as he's crucified for the sins of the world, which is the glory of the character of God. It's the glory of his person. It's the glory of who he is. It's not in dispute, God is powerful. But what's in dispute is, is God good? James and John, they wanted the power, but did they want the character? So Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't get the power. You don't get the power of God unless you want the character of God. What do you want from me? What do you want from me? You just want to be important? You just want to distinguish yourselves? You just want to have a high and lofty position? so that people can think that you're important? You don't know what you're asking. You think that following me is about sitting on a throne and ruling over other people? You think that that's what I'm about? You think that that's what I'm like? You don't know what you're asking. Everyone, even Satan, wants the power of God. But not everybody wants the character of God. You know, I used to serve in the United States Navy, and it was amazing. It was amazing how we would go to, you know, we would go to certain countries, the Philippines, Thailand, third world countries that did not provide the lifestyle, the comfort, the convenience, the luxury of Western nations like Australia or the United States or Canada or European nations. And we'd have guys on the ship, you know? You know, homely guys, guys that were socially awkward and maladjusted and didn't bathe, were unkempt and greasy and downright ugly. And when they would go into port, in these ports of call in the Philippines or Pattaya Beach, Thailand, or wherever else, it was amazing how, for some strange reason, the women of those countries found them attractive. The men, they had no clue that they, at the end of the day, were 
really only attractive to these women because of what these women could, could get out of them. How these women could exploit them. Now, you can't blame these women necessarily because they're in a difficult circumstance in a very impoverished and, and desperate situation. And, and they, would, they would feign affection, they would feign love for these men, and they would only do it so that they could get to the United States of America and bring their family there. They didn't love these men for who they were. They loved these men for what they could get out of these men. Now, this isn't a judgment. Could you say amen? Matt's not judging these women. I'm just using a story to communicate a point. James and John, we want to sit next to you when you come into your glory. Oh, do you really? You don't know what you're asking because you don't have a full understanding or a complete understanding of what my glory is. You just think of my glory as my power, but I think of my glory as my character and the love that I have for people and the willingness I, am, I have to, to sacrifice everything for the lost. Is that what you want? Is that what you're asking me for? Are you asking me to make you like me in character? Are you wanting me to make you like me? Where you would get stripped naked and people would spit in your face and people would jeer at you and lie about you and misrepresent you for no good reason. And then, then you'd say about them, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Is that what you're asking for? Or, or is what you're asking for to be great, to be important? You with me? Now, we can't be too hard on the disciples, and I'm not trying to be too hard on them. I'm just trying to exaggerate for emphasis. There's nothing wrong with wanting the power of God. Could you say amen? Like, there's nothing wrong with wanting the power of God, unless that's all you want. Yeah? Come on, saints. You're not asleep, are you? I don't expect you to be black Americans or anything, but you're, you're, you can, I'm, I'm a human being. I'm not like a robot. You can, you can, right? It's, it's, it's nothing wrong with wanting the power of God, but there is something wrong if that's all you want. We're not heavyans. We don't use God to get stuff. We're Christians. We follow Christ because we want to be like him. We love who he is. We love the law of life. We love the God of life. We love the kingdom of heaven. And that's what we pursue. We're not heavyans. We're Christians. Yeah? Yeah, I'd say so. There's nothing wrong with wanting the power of God, but there is something wrong if that's all that you want. We want the glory of God, sure, but do we want the power of God or, or, or the character? Now, I'm going to be timely and on time, and, and those of you guys who know me are, are thinking to yourself, oh, he's coming to the, to the 12 o'clock mark. We know Matt Parra. He can't resist. He's going to preach for ages. No, I'm not. Even I can have the gift of the Spirit of self-control. There was a famous American baseball player named Hank Aaron, and he was a very, very good batter. He, he, pl he played, I said he was a baseball player. Yeah, I said that. He's a baseball player, great American baseball player, Hank Aaron. He was a home run champion. You guys know the sport of baseball, right? It's a more masculine version of the game of cricket. It's kind of like an American version, a masculine version. Sorry. I'm going to be an Australian citizen. I shouldn't say that. Watch out. And 
and there was a man who, who would come to his practices, and, and this man would say to him, he'd scream from the crowd, Hank Aaron, I want to be just like you. You're the best Hank. You're the best Hank. And he'd come every day, and Hank was so famous, and people loved him so much that they would actually come to his practices just to watch him practice. That's awesome. And this man would yell out, Hank, I love you, Hank. You're the best. You're the best, Hank. I want to be just like you, Hank. And Hank would sign autographs at the end of practice. And one day he said to this man, sir, with all due respect, I don't think that you want to be like me. And the man said, no, Hank, I want to be just like you. You're the greatest. Hank, you're awesome. And, and, and Hank said to the man, he said, sir, with all due respect, I, I know that you, you think you want to be like me, but you really don't want to be like me. You see, you just want to be famous like me. If you wanted to be like me, you'd be practicing like me. Interesting. It highlights a very simple and profound point. That man didn't understand fully what was involved with being Hank Aaron, an African-American playing in the major league of, of baseball filled with men who hated him and opposed him. And he was a black guy in the 1960s, and he was the home run champion. People hated him. But he had a strong character. He was a decent and moral man, and he, and he kept his integrity in spite of how everyone treated him. And he practiced faithfully, religiously. He was disciplined and awesome. And he knew that this man didn't want to be like him. Now, I just want to, to say that I know that in one short sermon in a church that I'm not familiar with, in a context that I'm not the most comfortable with, I'm not, just to be very honest with you, I'm not the most comfortable preaching in, in big churches with open spaces. I don't know what it is. It's some psychological problem that I have. And if there's a doctor in the house, I'm, I'm happy to get your help. I know that in a, in a short time frame, with myself as it is, I can't communicate this message as effectively as I would like to. But just in essence, I'm wanting to communicate. I think that, have you, have you kind of sensed, have you seen what the texts of Scripture are communicating here? You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of my cup? Can you be baptized with my baptism? Yeah, we can, they say. He says, well, the day's going to come when you can. Right now, you can't. And then Jesus says, it's not, it's not up to me who gets to sit on my right hand and on my left when I come into my glory. Now, for this, I'm going to read you the final passage here of, of this message, and then make a few closing points, okay? It's in Luke chapter 23. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And I want to read to you just a few verses here, beginning in verse 32. Now, church, what did James and John want from Jesus? I've said it a million times. I'm not trying to patronize you, but just say it so I can hear you say it. What did James and John want? To, yeah, that's right, to sit with Jesus when he came into his glory, one on his right and one on his left, right? And then Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You just want the glory of my power, but you don't want the glory of my character. Now, if, I, if you had the glory of my character, God could trust you with the glory of my power, but he can't trust you with that right now because what you want is power, and if God gave you power, you'd abuse it because you don't have the character that I want to ha you to have inside of you. 
Now, now, now check this out. It says, this is in verse 32, describing the event that Jesus said when he prayed to his father was a manifestation of the glory of God that God always had throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Sacrificial, loving character. Notice what it says here. Verse 32. Two others also who were criminals were being led away and to be put to death with Jesus. And when they had come to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on the, help me out church, and the other on the, Can we be with you when you come into your glory? Guys, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus knew what they were asking. Imagine James and John. How'd we end up here? We didn't know what we were asking. Sometimes God is merciful by not giving us what we ask. So church, God wants to ask you today, do you know what you're asking? What are you asking of God? Make us great. Do we know what that really means in heaven's eyes? We want to we be a power for good in the world and, and reach out as an evangelistic tool. Do we know what we're asking? Because that might not mean that we win. You know what that might mean? We end up on the cross. Success in ministry and evangelism isn't about us winning. It's about us dying. It's not about, I've got status. Look how important I am. I've got this to show I'm important. I've got that to show I'm important. I've got this to show I'm important. And hey, I'm next to Jesus on his right hand. Do we know what we're asking? I'd like for us as a church and as a conference to fulfill the will of God in our midst and be an evangelistic force so powerful and so profound that we shake the world at its core, but we can't be when we're just asking for the glory of God's power and not the glory of God's character. We show off for each other, and I'm not saying you particularly, I'm not here to like lambast you as an individual, but in a general sense as a church community, Laodicea just, we've got, we just show off for each other and navel gaze and power play and, and there's just not enough of us dying on the cross for each other and for the sake of the world. And Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. All the churches ask me, what do we do to succeed in evangelism? I look at them and I say, die for people. Die for them. I, um, I might seem mad, but I'm not mad. I'm just Spanish. <laughs> I'm just a white one. Now, when I came to Jesus Christ and I found him as my Lord and personal Savior in Orlando, Florida, in August of 1999, I gave up everything. You hear me? Everything. 
Now, we know that what we give up for God is nothing. We think it's everything, but it's nothing. Because what do you give up for God? You don't give up anything for God. He asks nothing of you that isn't for your good to let go of, and he owns everything anyways. You don't give up anything for him. You know what I mean? But from my standpoint, as a sinner, I give up everything for Jesus. My family, my, my city, my future. And I traveled the United States as an itinerant minister, not working for the church as an employee. I never had the desire to work for the church as an employee. I just didn't see myself in that, in that space. And I still don't see myself in that space. I don't know why I'm here sometimes. If God calls you, you go. But I traveled the U.S., I lived in my truck, I, about six or seven years, just preaching the gospel, doing evangelism, doing youth ministry. I thought at the time I was making big sacrifices to Jesus because I was unreservedly committed to him. I got the opportunity to preach an evangelistic campaign in Chernigov, Ukraine, in the northern part of the country. I was with a missionary organization called OCI, a fantastic group of very committed Seventh-day Adventist ministers. And I was preaching there uh, in English with a translator. And there was this guy, his name was Igor. He was coming to the meetings every night. He was 18 or 19 years old. He was relatively young. And he wasn't coming to the meetings because he wanted to hear the Bible preached. He was coming to the meetings because he was into technology and we, uh, at the meetings had really advanced sound equipment, like, like state-of-the-art technological equipment for sound and for audio and all this stuff, and he was really interested. And so he'd come every night. And I'd preach my heart out, you know, with, with, with all of my liabilities and, and all of my natural, you know, deficiencies. I just gave God what I had, and I just preached. I just preached. I didn't know what it would amount to necessarily, but he was hearing it, and he was affecting him. It was having an effect on him. And one night, I, I made a, an, a, an appeal after telling a story, a particular famous story that highlights the sacrifice of God in Christ. And, and he and I, Igor, we walked home every night after the campaign. And, and this one particular night after I told that story and made that appeal, he was very quiet. He was very quiet. He, he didn't say much. He was, he was somber. He looked very sober. And, and you could tell he was thinking. He was, something was happening. And finally, we got to my flat, and I said to him, brother, what's up? You're not yourself. He was a very happy and fun and lively kid. I said, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And it was the most profound thing. He, he just looked at me. He just looked at me, and he said, he said, thank you. I understand it. I understand why you've come. I knew what he meant. You know, you have those moments where God connects all of the dots and he wakes you up to the realization that you thought you were alive your whole life, but you never were, and now he's bringing you to life. And he's always been there, and he's got a destiny for you. And he just began to understand the gospel and the truth of the scriptures. And he couldn't articulate it perfectly, but he just looked at me and said, I know why you've come. Thank you. Thank you. And then he said, Matthew, you're my best friend. You're the best friend I could have ever had. 
Now, in effect, church, I died. I died. I could say so much about my experience as a Christian convert, but I, I did not seek after a resume. I did not seek after position or status. I genuinely, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, I'm not, I'm just I'm making an illustration. In the sincerity and integrity of my heart, I just followed God as I believed he was calling me with my heart. And I sacrificed a lot. And I'm in the Ukraine, and I'm preaching the gospel. And there's this kid, this young 19-year-old kid, and he looks at me in the face, and he says, I know why you came. I know why you came. Guys, I had died to my life. I had sacrificed so much. Now, we know I didn't sacrifice anything. I got Jesus. I got everything. But then I'm in the Ukraine. And what a reward that was. Could you say amen? What a reward that was. When you seek the character of God, God begins to use you to bring human beings to life again for eternity's sake. And boy, that's when you're living. That's when you're in joy and in blessing. And so church, my message is simple. You've heard the points. You're spiritual, intelligent people. Please, I pray, hear the word of God. Receive it, even though it's come from me, perfect, fallen guy, skinny American who's a little bit rough around the edges, and, and receive it. And seek in your own experience, not just the power of God like Satan did, but seek the character of God. And God will endow you with power and ability, and he'll make your light shine. And you'll meet Igor after Igor who get to come to heaven with you. God bless you, church. Thank you for your time.